Well, let's go back to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, back to verses 24 and 25. Back to verses 24 and 25. There's so much uh, good to be found here in God's Word. And sometimes when I started studying through verse 24 this week, and I thought, I don't think I'll be able to get out of verse 24. There was so much stuff. I don't know if you noticed. It's hard to you ever get there and you start studying something and you say, "Wow, this is really good." When we come back tonight. I want to come back to verses 24 and 25 in Colossians for a special purpose. And we've been talking. We were talking this morning about being saved to serve. And maybe you noticed some of the songs we sang tonight were about our service. I was thinking about that and, um, and what a what a privilege it is to be uh, to be servants of the Lord. God's servants, let's, um, let's ask God for his blessing tonight as we look at the scriptures again. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask for your blessing tonight, your encouragement, your wisdom. Uh, work in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. Reveal to us your truth. Help us to understand your word as, as we read it each time we come to it. Reveal your truth to us as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our uh, family, uh, most of us, we enjoy, actually, um, some of us more than others, enjoy watching sports on television. And believe it or not, um, Carolyn, I don't know if you mind me telling tattling on you, actually, Carolyn enjoys watching sports more than I do sometimes. Now, she gets to <laughs> you really get into a game sometimes, you know, and watching a certain team or whatever, and we don't get too much, but when we get to this time of year, like when the basketball starts winding down and the Pistons are still hanging in there, I don't know if they won today because the game was still going when we left, right? She knows because she was watching. But our family, our family really enjoys watching sports, and when you know when we watch sports, we kind of sit and relax and watch the game. Not really. We sometimes we get fairly animated. Um, some folks have been. Um, we've had folks over to our house at times, especially when there have been like Ohio State and Michigan playing. And it's really hard not to be really animated, especially when you're with Michigan fans, you know. And So you're trying to be polite and not go, yeah, you know, you got him. It's like, oh, I hope he wasn't hurt too bad, <laughs> you know, whatever. But you know, we, we really get into our sports sometimes. But the, no matter how animated we get, you know, and how into the game we get, there's something that separates us from the game. It's this box, you know, it's this tube. Um, no matter how excited we are about the game, we really don't have anything to do with the game. I mean, we can scream and yell at the television all we want, and they will not change the way they play because we're screaming and yelling at the TV, unfortunately. Sometimes we wish they would change because we're screaming and yelling at them. But we're just spectators, the, the game has, is played by active participants, isn't it? The game is won by active participants. And it's not even, even the people that are in the stands at the game. That helps um, if, you're, if you've ever been to a game. I remember a football game at Houghton Lake a couple of years ago when um, Ross Common and Houghton Lake was, were playing each other. You remember that? And it was really close game. And everybody... Were you guys there, Bear Lockers? Were you there that night? And I remember Jason was still on crutches. That, I think Jason was on crutches that night. And everybody got down on the field and walked down to the end where they were playing 
and I was right there with him, and I was whistling as loud as I could and screaming because we're trying to, you know, get the team to win, right? We're trying to help. I think we were trying to root on Ross Common here. And, and it was amazing to me, you know, how loud it was, and, you know, we were getting all animated. And I think that that helps a little bit, but still, you don't have any control over the game when you're a spectator. You've got to play the game, don't you? You've got to get in the game. Got to be involved. Paul was involved, wasn't he? He was an active participant. After Paul was reconciled to God, he was very busy serving the Lord. And not busy for the sake of busyness, because that doesn't, um, that doesn't really help us or help the cause of Christ just being busy for the sake of business, but busy being committed to the work of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was a participant. You know, the Lord that he had once persecuted, you remember when Jesus confronted him on the road and said, why are you persecuting me? The Lord that he once persecuted, now he's, he's ministering for, for the name of Christ. And he was spreading the gospel. Paul didn't have the attitude of, wow, you know, Christ saved me, and now I'm just going to sit back and take it easy. He didn't just relax and, or even just sit on the sidelines and cheer people on. He actually got in the game, didn't he? We have a wonderful example in Paul's life. He was very busy serving. He wasn't just a spectator. He was very actively involved in, if you want to call it, the game. He was very involved in the game, you know, so to speak. Well, tonight I want to reflect on Paul's service and our responsibility to be actively involved, to be active participants in the ministry, in the work, because we are saved to serve. You know, we've been reconciled to serve. That that truth of the reconciliation is such a precious thing to be reconciled, to be made right with God, something we could not do. And the least we can do now is get involved and to be involved in the work of the Lord. And when God saves us, He, he generally leaves us here to minister for the good of the gospel. Um, he doesn't you know, snatch us off planet Earth and the moment we trust in Him and take us to glory, does He? There are exceptions to that. Um, you know, there are exceptions to that. He, he generally leaves us here to, to serve Him once we're saved, you know, to serve and to live for Him and to work for Him. There are exceptions to that. I think of the, the thief on the cross, you know, beside Christ, who, who cried out and, and Christ told him that He would be with him that day in paradise. Of course, he didn't serve the Lord, but he did um, pledge allegiance to the Lord in so many words to say, I believe in you. You know, you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, you'll be with me in eternity tonight. And so there are very few exceptions, but, but generally he leaves us here to serve, doesn't he? And God expects us to get involved and to get into the game, so to speak. We're reconciled to serve. As we think about our own lives and our, our service to the Lord, it's really good to look at the great example that Paul gave us and left for us and then how he encourages the church. Let's look at these verses again. Verses 24 and 25 in Colossians chapter 1. He says, again, as we saw this morning, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. I want you to note, the object of our service. The object of our service is others. You realize that, don't you? The object of our service is others. And specifically, it begins 
in the church. Our, the object of our service is others, the other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. It begins with our service to one another. doesn't end there, but it begins with our service to one another. Paul was, was given this stewardship from God for the benefit of serving others. The Greek word for stewardship is a, it's a compound word made up of the word for house and manage. The idea is of managing someone else's household for them. Like a, like a house steward. Paul's stewardship was given to him by God. It was a special stewardship, very important that he be attentive to the stewardship that God had given him. And the household that he was serving was the church. I want you to note that the church is referred to as the household of God. If we were to look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, it says there, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. And I want you to note, too, that Paul was serving to benefit the church. He was serving to benefit the church, the household of God, serving to benefit other believers. And in verse 25, Paul says that his stewardship was given by God for you. Another reminder that he was serving for the benefit of others. You use referring to other believers, to the church. So Paul wasn't selfish. He wasn't thinking about himself by serving the church. He was serving for the sake of others. He, he wasn't serving for his own benefit. He was serving his fellow believers, the body of Christ. He was serving the church. Now I want you to note two things about how we should serve. Okay, We know the object of our service, others, begins with others in the church, other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. But I want you to note tonight, and the remainder of our time is going to be about this, how we should serve. The first way that we ought to serve is is faithfully. We ought to be faithful servants. Know what Paul says in in the verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you want to listen, I'll read here 1 Corinthians 4 verses 1 and 2. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Now, we are servants of Christ. We're, we're God's servants. Now, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. And, and as stewards, we ought to be found trustworthy. I think the idea is here that we ought to be found faithful. We ought to be found faithful. If someone's trustworthy, they're faithful, aren't they? And we ought to be serving faithfully. We get an idea of how this looks in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, where it speaks of serving the Lord with zeal and fervency of spirit. And what is it that we're to do as we serve the Lord with zeal and fervency of spirit? Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're to do good to everyone. We're to look out for the needs of others. And I think it's interesting that there's this emphasis in Galatians 6.10 put on paying special attention to how we treat one another, where it says, you know, especially to those of the household of faith. Our special attention put on how we treat each other. Think about that. Our service, our servant attitude, properly formed, begins here, doesn't it? It begins in how we serve each other. 
And as that Galatians 6.10 passage says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I started to think about that. Why does it say especially those of the household of faith? And I, the more I think about that, I think that, that here's the reason. Because if the world sees us mistreating each other, why, why are they going to have anything to do with anything that we say? Right? You know the saying, people don't know how much you care until they... Uh, to, people don't know how much... They don't, don't care how much you know. Let me try that again. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And kind of a, a, a fancy little ditty to remind you that, that we ought to be showing people the love of Christ. And if we can't show each other the love of Christ, and I'm not just talking about us... But the church at large, I think a lot of churches struggle with this. I think you're doing well with this. I'm not saying that, that you're struggling with this. I think we're doing well with this. Could we improve? Probably. I think so. Any church could, right? I think you do well with this, but we can always do better. We need to keep, keep this in check because we don't ever want to slide from this. If we can't love each other, the world, world could care less about what we know about Jesus Christ and about what we're telling them about God's word. That's why I think that emphasis there is so critical in Galatians 6.10 that it says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Others, absolutely, we treat others in the community with love and respect and help meet their needs, but we better start here in our own home, right? It's the same, same is true in the Christian family. Um, what, what chance is there? of the world that we live in listening to us if we don't get that right? you know, What chance is there of the world that we live in learning about the, the Jesus that we say we love and the Jesus that we say changes our lives if they can't see much of a change and we're kind of backbiting and tearing each other apart, right? So it's a critical thing that we pay attention to treating each other right and let, that, let the outflow of how we treat one another reach into the community and share the love of Christ that way. That's why in Hebrews 10.24 we find this. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How to stir up one another to love and good works. You know how to stir up each other to love and good works? I know how it works in my family. When, when we do good things for each other and nice things and we show our love, that, you know what happens is that starts stirring up the love in others and they, in return, we don't, you don't serve for that reason, do you? We shouldn't. I mean, not necessarily so we can get... The, the return love, we talked about that in Sunday school this morning. But it's true, isn't it? Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We need to be stirred up, don't we? We need to be encouraged. We need to be reminded of the things about Jesus Christ and how he went to the cross for us. The love began there, didn't it? And then to have the mind of Christ and to live the mind of Christ toward others, to stir one another up to love and to good works toward one another. But there's more to that passage. Verse 25 goes on to say, not neglecting to meet together. Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the ways that we watch out for each other watch out for one another and care for one another. And one of the ways we show our love for one another is by, by being certain that we gather together as a church. We wouldn't be much of a church if we didn't get together. We wouldn't be much of a church if we didn't get together. We need each other, don't we? If we didn't come together for this time, 
like this and fellowship and worship and and be reminded and built up about who we're serving and why we're serving, we wouldn't be much of a church. We could be a church in name only. We could get together for, and I don't don't even know what bridge is. You know, we could get together for bridge. You know, we could get together for, I don't know, monopoly or, you know, whatever. You could choose whatever we could get together for and be called a church and really not be a church because we need to have a love that's founded in the gospel, don't we? In the truths of the word, where we find here, where it's talking about stirring up one another love and good works. We need each other. We wouldn't be much of a church without one another. We wouldn't be much of a church without gathering together, meeting together as we do for, for encouragement, for this time of worship, for the study of the word. These are critical things, very important things. Well, I want you to think about what happens if we neglect serving one another in this way. You know, we gather for spiritual food, right? That's important. We gather for fellowship. We often have fellowship times. You know, we call fellowship times. But, but really, our fellowship starts when we get to the door. Sometimes it begins in the parking lot, right, when you see each other. And it doesn't end until we split up and go our separate ways. Sometimes our fellowship carries on throughout the week. We shoot emails back and forth or phone calls or we see each other and we visit. That's fellowship. We need that. What happens if we neglect that fellowship? What happens if, if we become withdrawn? And we say, ah, you know, I'm just not feeling the greatest today. I think I'm just going to stay home. And one week turns into two. I'm not saying it's wrong to stay home if you're not feeling well. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's wrong not to be here every time the doors are open. I understand that people have lives, right? But what happens if we start going, ah, you know, I'm going to skip this week. And next week you go, ah, yeah, I'm not going to go this week either. And then two turns into three, right? And what happens? You kind of wither up, don't you? You know, you think about a grape. Throw a grape out on your deck in the sun. What's going to happen to that grape in a few days? It'll be a raisin, right? That's kind of like the believer outside of the church, isn't it? You kind of wither up and fade away. But think about what... I want you to think about the impact that that has on the church. Not just you as a part of the church. But that actually hurts the church. Have you ever thought about that? And You probably have thought about that. You've probably seen it. Or maybe you've experienced it and not realized it. But when, when folks begin to drift away and, and they lose that fellowship and they're not growing in, in the love for one another, not only do they suffer, but the church suffers. And you and I suffer, right? Others suffer. It'd be like, it'd be like your spouse who decided one day that, eh, I'm not going to talk to my spouse today. And one day turned into two, you know? And two days turned into three. And a week turned into a month. And you didn't talk to, you know, what would happen? You'd kind of go your separate ways. And I think you know, probably a divorce would soon follow. And that happens, doesn't it? And those are, those are destructive things in families. It's the same way for the church. When we drift apart, when we get away from this, this uh, fellowship that we need, and we neglect gathering together for encouragement, spiritual food, we all suffer. Not just the person who's drifting away, right? But the whole church suffers. We're reconciled to serve one another. And when we don't serve, everyone pays the price. That's why it's so critical that not just for ourselves, it's, you ought to begin there, you might be motivated and encouraged to serve for yourself, but remember you're serving for the good of others. You're serving for the good of the church. I think one of the problems that we face today, and you probably have noticed this too, is this over-busyness. And I'm, sometimes I catch myself in the middle of it, you know, going, oh, I've got so much to do. I'm so busy. You know, we're over-busy, aren't we? And unfortunately, I think so many families are over-busy. Over There's so much busyness. 
So much busyness that, that I think some families don't have time to serve, don't have time to be a part of the church. And I think that that's a sad commentary on the day that we live in. Now, there was a quote from Christianity Today in 2006. They had an article in which this statement was made about the busyness of our families and the detriment to them and the church because of it. They say this in their article. They surveyed some pastors about this issue. The pastors we surveyed report that overall busyness of families is keeping families away from church. Asked whether people are spending more discretionary time on family activities or church commitments, 76% said the scale tipped toward family activities. This contrasts with the perception of 62% of, of respondents that a generation ago free time was more likely spent on church commitments. They say the balance has shifted. And that's unfortunate, isn't it? And I think churches suffer for that. Churches all over our country are suffering because the balance has shifted. And when when free time comes, it's like, well, let's we'll do a family thing, and we don't, you know, well, church is a Sunday thing. We don't have time for that this weekend because we want to do a family thing instead. That's why I think it's so important as we as we minister and as we serve and as we grow, we be a family church, right? We be a place where a family can come and worship together where a family can come and serve together, where a family can come and be, be fed the word together so that as they come to church, they're doing something as a family, right? It's, it's a sad thing when the balance shifts and people start saying, you know, I know church is important, but, you know, I, uh, this other activity is more important this weekend. And one weekend turns into two, right? And one activity turns into three. The balance has certainly shifted, hasn't it? And that is why... We have got to be very diligent to care for the stewardship. The stewardship that we have from God is, is a, a very critical responsibility, very big responsibility, that we care for that stewardship that we have from God and that stewardship toward one another. And when we're diligent, we benefit, right? As individuals, we benefit. When we're diligent, the body of Christ, the whole church benefits. Others benefit. So we're... To serve faithfully, we're to serve with fervency, with zeal, which brings me to that second way that we should serve, and that's with gladness, with joy. We kind of hit on that uh, at great length this morning when we saw uh, Paul's attitude there in, um, in verse uh, 24, I think, 24. Serve the Lord with joy, right? Serve the Lord with gladness. How, how, do, how should we serve? We should be faithful. We should also do it with joy. Because you can be faithful and serve without joy. You know that, right? And you, maybe you've been like me. You've experienced it. I've done that. It's like, I'm going to do this thing, you know, and I'm going to get it done, and I'm going to feel better by the time I'm done. I don't think so. But at least I'll get it done. You can serve without joy, but we need to serve with joy, don't we? We need to serve with gladness. Psalm 100, verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness come into his presence with singing paul says in verse 24 in colossians 1 now i rejoice in my sufferings you read that and you go how in the world could you rejoice in your sufferings we have trouble with that don't we rejoice in suffering really how do you do that well it's a lot easier isn't it like i said this morning it's a lot easier to suffer in your sufferings it's a lot easier to say, oh, look at me, you know, I'm really suffering. Don't you feel sorry for me? It's a lot harder, isn't it, to have joy in your suffering. And I'm not saying that we don't ever feel, feel sorrow. 
I'm not saying that we don't ever feel pain and that we aren't ever bereaved, but to be able to say, I've got this great burden and I can give it to the Lord and, and while I'm mourning and even while I'm weeping, I can give it to the Lord and that brings me great joy because I can do this for God's glory and I can serve Him through this hardship, through this difficulty with joy. The guys and I... Uh, I think we told you about the men's retreat last weekend that we went to, and we really enjoyed it. The guys and I had a very good laugh at the men's retreat a week ago when Ken Rudolph was illustrating how he had at one time viewed his role as a pastor through the lens of the song, um, the song you know, the song that's So Send I You. And he had said he'd gotten really depressed. And here he was, a pastor, and people were bringing him all their problems and calling him with their problems. He's like, I don't know, you know, I can't even fix my own problems. I'm really depressed. And he was really discouraged. And he was talking about how he served through the lens of that song, that So Send I You. He made the point that, that too many perform their service for Christ as though they're singing that song. And he, I can't illustrate it the way he did, but um, those of you who have heard Ken Rudolph, you know he's hilarious at times. And he... He got to sing in the song, you know, and he says, So send I you to labor unrewarded, you know, unloved, un, you know, unpaid, unsought, unknown. And he goes into the whole, de- the whole routine, and we're just busting up. You remember that? But it's really true, isn't it? Sometimes we go into our ministry kind of singing that song, Oh, so send I you to labor unrewarded, unloved, you know, unknown, rebuked, scorned, scoffing. He's right, isn't he? It's, it's convicting to me because I do that at times myself. I go, oh, i got this thing I have to do, and I'm not too happy about it, but I'm going to do it because I'm serving the Lord. You know, It's hard. Oh, poor me, right? Sometimes we go, oh, poor me. I'm working for Jesus. I'm going to take my Bible out into the gardens and eat worms, right? And everybody will feel sorry for me, and if they don't, I'll feel sorry for myself. Why is it so critical that we have joy in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our service? Why is it so critical? I think it goes back to the same reason that it's critical that the, that the community that we live in doesn't see infighting in the church. If the community sees you going about your Christian service with the so send I you attitude, right? They're going to go, what good is that? I can have a better attitude than that. I'm going to sit down and watch a game or something. I'm going to, you know, you go to church, fine. I'm going to go do something else because that's not bringing, that's not going to bring me joy. It's not bringing you joy, right? It's critical that we rejoice in our suffering. We spent a lot of time on that this morning, but let me make a couple of more suggestions for you. And one of them I'm just going to make very briefly. But for one, if we can't, if we can't serve with joy, there's an indicator there that something's not right spiritually. You know? If, if we can't serve with joy, there's an indicator there that something's not right spiritually in our hearts, in our lives. And of course, none of us have arrived spiritually, have we? And I am not suggesting that you that you're never that you never should experience some some difficulty and hardship in your suffering, and you begin to feel sorry for yourself. But what happens if you're spiritually right? If you're growing spiritually, you catch yourself, don't you? And you go, wait a minute, I'm discouraged or I'm depressed about this. But but wait a minute, I don't have to be, because God's given me His Holy Spirit. And you know what? I can have joy in the midst of this suffering. So I think there's one reason, there's a very important reason why if we can't serve with joy, it's a, it's a check for us, isn't it? Kind of a check and balance to say, wait a minute, something's not right spiritually. 
Another reason, though, that it's so critical that we serve with joy, that, that we serve with gladness, is for the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Just what I was hitting on a second ago, that, that we absolutely have to serve with joy for God's glory. For God to get the glory, we've got to serve with joy. I was reminded about the importance of this before Easter when I heard this commercial on the radio. And um, at first when I heard it, let me just, I, I, I try to remember what the commercial was about. It was before Easter. And this commercial was a church advertising their Easter service. And I'm going to try to do it the way I heard it because it was really unbelievable the way I heard it. It went like this. Join us Easter Sunday for a festive Easter celebration with music and worship in the time-honored Anglican tradition. It was just like it was a lot longer than that. And I got done. I think Carol and I were in the same room. We looked at each other. At first, I thought it was a joke. At first, I thought it was a spoof. They were going to spoof a church or something. I thought they were making fun of a church. And we got done, and I looked at it. We got no punchline. That can't be a commercial. Who would go to that church? I can't believe they did that. I was like, I can't believe they did that. What church in their right mind would advertise that way? And then I heard the commercial again. For about two weeks before Easter, we kept hearing it over and over again. I said, I can't believe they're advertising their church that way. Who would go to church there? That's just wrong. You know, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And then about two days before Easter, or maybe three days before Easter, we heard the commercial like this. Join us Easter Sunday for a festive Easter celebration with music and worship in the time-honored Anglican tradition. And I thought, somebody on the control board messed up the timing of that first commercial, and they finally figured it out, and they were playing it too slow. And I thought, man, what, you know, what, the, what they communicated to the people that were listening to them was not what they wanted to communicate, was it? They did not want to communicate that to the, to the community. And I couldn't believe it. Man, how in the world could they advertise like that? They didn't realize they were advertising like that. They didn't intend to advertise like that. Because when I heard it right, it dawned on me, oh, somebody messed up the speed of that thing. You can do that with computers these days. You can speed things up. And I thought, they, somebody really messed that up. Oh, man, somebody's in trouble now, you know. But it sounded a lot better at the right speed. I'll tell you what, you know, if we don't have joy... It's like, it's like playing our joy at the wrong speed. It's like playing our ministry, our service at the wrong speed. It's like telling people about the Lord at the wrong speed. You really ought to love Christ because He's the greatest thing in my life. He really is. You know, it would be like telling people, trying to witness to people like that. Living without joy, ministering without joy, serving without joy is like that commercial slowed down that goes, makes people go, huh, who would go to church there? That's why it's so critical that we be a people who can serve with joy. How can I reach my neighbor if I don't serve with joy? How can this church reach anybody if we don't serve with joy? That's so critical. The author of the words to that hymn, So Send I You, wrote the following about her text. She said, In the north, I experienced deep loneliness of every kind, mental, cultural, particularly spiritual. I found no Bible-believing church fellowship and only one or two isolated Christians in those years. Studying the word one night and thinking of the loneliness of my situation, I came to John 20 and the words, So send I you. Because of a physical disability, I could never go to the mission field. But God seemed to tell me that night that this was my mission field. 
that this was where he had sent me. I had, I had written verse all my life, so it was natural for me to express my thoughts in a poem. And so she wrote that hymn, that So Send I You, um, the one that I was making light of, that Ken made light of, you know, the words that, that, that communicate maybe something that we don't intend to communicate. I was telling Carolyn about Ken Rudolph's illustration, and she said in college, Ken Osbeck, Ken, es- Ken Osbeck wrote several books called Hymn Histories. We have some of them. And you took a class that he taught in college, right? And you told me when, when I started telling her about that, she said, but she came back later in life and realized that that song was a downer, <laughs> that that communicated the wrong message for some people, and she rewrote it. And so you found this for me in one of the hymn histories. I was telling Carolyn about it. I didn't know this. Maybe you didn't know it. The author goes on to say this about the rewriting. She says, Some years later, I realized that the poem was really very one-sided. It told only of the sorrows and privations of the missionary call and none of its triumphs. I wrote another song in the same rhythm to the same tune so that the verses could be used interchangeably, setting forth the glory and the hope of the missionary calling. This was published in 1963. It's interesting that many of the newer hymnals are now dropping my first version in favor of my second version. I rejoice at this. Above all, I wish to be a biblical writer, and the second hymn is the more biblical one. I want to read it to you because... As I read her hymn, as I read her second hymn, I was so convicted by it. I thought, man, this is a powerful truth. And I'm so glad she rewrote it because if you, if you sing the first hymn, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with the first hymn, but if you serve like the So Send I You Christian of the first hymn that uses words like So Send I You to labor unrewarded, and there really is reward. You know, maybe not on this earth, but there is reward. So to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to hear, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing, so send I you to toil for me alone. And, you know, you can sing those words with the right attitude or you can serve them with, or sing them with the wrong attitude. But what she wrote to follow up that song is so powerful. Let me read them to you in closing tonight. She says this, So send I you by grace made strong to triumph or hosts of hell, or darkness, death, and sin, my name to bear and in that name to conquer, so send I you my victory to win. So send I you to take to souls in bondage the word of truth that sets the captive free, to break the bonds of sin, to loose death's fetters, so send I you to bring the lost to me. So send I you my strength to know in weakness, my joy in grief, my perfect peace in pain, to prove my power, my grace, my promised presence. So send I you eternal fruit to gain. So send I you in sorrow yet rejoicing, as poor in store, yet boundless wealth to give, as having not and yet possessing all things, so send I you the life of heaven to live. So send I you to bear my cross with patience and then one day with joy to lay it down, to hear my voice, well done, my faithful servant. Come, share my throne, my kingdom, and my crown. Isn't that great? Stand with me, would you please? Let's pray.
God, we're so thankful that we can serve You with joy because of Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. God, we are so thankful that we can come here tonight and, and just bask in the glory of Your Word and the encouragement that we find here. And so, Lord, help us to leave here tonight refreshed and encouraged to face, yes, trials at times, difficulties, even heartache and and burden and, and sorrow. Lord, help us to do it for Your glory. Help us to face it and to go through it for Your glory. Help us to realize that there is great joy in serving the risen Savior. And Lord, help us to properly communicate to the world that we live in the love of Christ so that they too can enjoy the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Tonight, Lord, we thank You for Your Word, the encouragement we find here. And we thank You for the wisdom that You often give us when we yield to You and ask for Your your wisdom. So, Lord, we ask for Your wisdom once again, asking for Your direction as we go into the week ahead to live for You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you tonight. You're dismissed.